From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Emily Ernson. This is your news for Thursday, April 27th. I just go out there to reminisce a little about when I used to cowboy in that country. I don't hunt and fish, so I just go looking. This is Carl Tangren. He was born in Moab in 1930 in a house where Love Muffin is today. When he was younger, he used to camp in the cliffs north of town. He says he didn't have to bring much food with him while he was out there. He'd dig up wild artichokes and steal eggs from nearby houses. That was enough to keep him going. Part of the reason we even know these details is because he recorded an oral history, which is now part of the Moab Museum's archive. We are a home for over 150 oral histories spanning nearly a century. This is Mary Langworthy, public programs manager at the museum. On Wednesday, she hosted a workshop for anyone interested in collecting oral histories. The goals for this workshop is really to democratize the history process. Oral history is something that all of us can participate in. You don't need a PhD. You don't need to be an expert in any particular facet of history. It's a way for all of us to talk to our friends and neighbors and record the stories floating around in our community and record them for future generations to learn from. Langworthy highlighted some tips for how to get a good story. First thing, build a relationship with the person. Don't just like show up at someone's doorstep with your microphone out, like spill the beans, tell me everything. Next up, I'll say, here's some questions I'm thinking of asking you. What do you think about these? What should I add to this list? What am I totally missing? People can often pick out questions that you should ask them that you would have never thought of. Um, Choose a good time, choose a good place, Some of the best ones I've watched or listened to happen in a living room and you'll hear someone's dog barking in the background or the tea kettle whistling or something. And that's the beauty, you know, history by the people for the people. Next up, transcribing it is best practice so that you can search through and find, I don't know, any specific mentions of individuals or locations. Next is to archive it. And something we take seriously here is sharing things within the parameters that the interviewee would like them shared. Some people, maybe you'll have the conversation and they'll say, ah, you know what, let's redact that story where I was ranting about my neighbor. The museum loans out recording equipment for free to anyone in the community who's interested in collecting oral histories. They can also help with transcription. You can add your stories to the museum's archive, or you can just keep them for yourself. Oral histories are like add the color to an old photo. One thing I loved reading about was Martha Westwood lived out in Dewey around the turn of the 20th century. And she described her daughter like getting up on cold mornings and rowing the other kids in a rowboat across the river to go to school every day. And that's just such a a sweet little detail that I haven't seen in a history book anywhere, but it just gives you such a tangible sense of like, wow, what a wild life. Here's another good example from an interview with Heidi Red of the historic Dugout Ranch. The first night we were there, our sleeping bags, an overhang cave. It was really cold. Christmas Eve at the ranch. We did lose 350 head that year, which was really a blow. But you know, this is the interesting thing um, that I learned about this business and ranching is um, you don't look back. 
The museum's current exhibit highlights some of the most colorful quotes from their oral history archives. The exhibit will be up for a few more days until the end of April. A big pulse of water has been rushing through the Grand Canyon this week. That's after federal authorities sent extra water out of Lake Powell in response to strong forecasts for snowmelt. KUNC's Alex Hager reports. It's called a high-flow experiment designed to help move sand and sediment around in the Grand Canyon. That helps rebuild beaches and sandbars, which provide valuable habitat to local wildlife. Sinjin Eberly with the conservation group American Rivers says it's the first high-flow event since 2018. It certainly is a sigh of relief, and especially because the damage to the canyon over the last couple of years has been pretty dramatic. Lake Powell, the nation's second largest reservoir, should see a substantial boost after a wet winter, but water managers are still scrambling to cut back demand on the reservoir amid decades of drought. That was Alex Hager of KUNC. Last week, the Upper Colorado Commission held a meeting to discuss concerns about a controversial government program designed to pay water users to cut back their use. Chris Clements of KSJD has more. The System Conservation Pilot Program, or SCPP, is intended to help boost flagging water levels in Lake Powell. At the meeting, 72 of the 88 applicants were ultimately approved. Some farmers and irrigators in southwest Colorado and in other upper basin states like New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming had reservations about applying, concerned about deliberately not farming their land in order to save water. Chuck Cullum, the executive director of the commission, says the process leading up to this iteration of the SCPP was rushed, something he says the commission takes responsibility for. And that caused and continues to cause stress for water management agencies, for the water rights agencies, for the most important people in this process, the growers, the producers, the water users. And uh, that is um, something that I regret, quite frankly, is that You know, we put folks who want to do good work and help the system into a stressful situation because of the timing. Colum also added that because of the timing of the program, Native American tribes like the Ute Mountain Ute and Southern Ute tribes were unable to participate. That was Chris Clements of KSJD. Pollinators play a key role in ecosystems around the world. One of the nation's leading centers for pollinator research is close by in Colorado. Shannon Young of KGNU took a trip out to the Butterfly Pavilion outside of Denver to hear about the work they do locally and internationally. Multiple busloads of school children clamor around display cases of invertebrates at the Butterfly Pavilion in Westminster. It features invertebrates of many kinds, from tarantulas to horseshoe crabs, But as the name implies, butterflies are a central focus. We're at Butterfly Pavilion in our conservatory where we have about 2,000 butterflies flying around us of about 150 species. And it's a tropical rainforest basically in the heart of um, Westminster, Colorado. And you can come here any any day of the year except for Christmas and Thanksgiving and immerse yourself in butterflies. They're just flying around. It's a beautiful sunny day so they're really flying all around us right now. That's Dr. Richard Reeding, Vice President of Research and Conservation at the Butterfly Pavilion. We have several different entrees into butterfly conservation, one of which is we buy actually all the butterflies you see flying around here from butterfly farms around the globe. And then we're doing conservation work such as we do in Mongolia, where we're actually working with five species of endangered butterflies um, listed by the Mongolian government 
and we're trying to understand the population sizes, the population dynamics, the habitat needs. And then if we really want to know if there's any habitat that's been um, unoccupied that we can reintroduce butterflies into so we can increase the population levels of those butterflies. This month, the Butterfly Pavilion hosted a small group of Mongolian scientists working on Parnassus butterfly conservation. As with many other pollinators, the health of these butterflies can indicate the well-being of their ecosystems. People collect butterflies like they do postage stamps and they trade them around the world. They send them in the mail to other people. And so particularly people from um, other Asian countries, but not so much in Mongolia, come to Mongolia, over collect. They collect too many butterflies um, so they can trade them for other butterfly species to get a big collection of butterflies, much like people who collect postage stamps do. So this is a big source of decline. And then the overgrazing, of course, it destroys the habitat of the butterflies. And why does the Butterfly Pavilion, of all the butterflies in all the corners of the globe, why would the Butterfly Pavilion invest in this particular genus of butterfly? Well, partly because they're in trouble and we want to help species that are in trouble. And partly because we have a, the landscape of Mongolia is very similar to the landscape of Colorado. So we have the same kind of grasslands in the east, mountains in the west. Um, we have similar genera. So the, some of the species are really similar to what you have in Mongolia, the ones we have in Colorado. So we do have Parnassus butterflies, different species, but closely related to the butterflies that live in Mongolia. So we can bring that expertise that we have about butterflies here and bring it to Mongolia. And they have a lot of expertise that they can share with us as well. And let's bring this full circle back to, to where we're standing right now. Kids are everywhere. <laughs> we're inside of this, this pavilion, inside of the butterfly room. What's the importance of not just these high-level educational exchanges, but also bringing in children to become interested in butterflies. We're very interested in children and education of children. In fact, right now working on a children's book with our education people, basically focused on Parnassian conservation in Mongolia. There's a similar book that exists. It's an interactive book where there's video and, and pictures, and students can use it online and it exists for students in the United States. We want to bring that same book and adapt it to the Mongolian culture and Mongolian context and then have that available to kids there. That was Dr. Richard Reading, Vice President of Research and Conservation at the Butterfly Pavilion in Westminster. We were speaking inside of the center's conservatory where hundreds of butterflies fly freely around a warm and humid plant-filled indoor habitat designed to replicate a tropical rainforest. Shannon Young of KGNU. That story was shared with us via Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public media stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico, including KZMU. And that's the KZMU News for Thursday, April 27th. Get your community-powered journalism weekdays on the airwaves at noon and 6 p.m. You can also find KZMU News anytime online at kzmu.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.